This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. How could it be that speech that would not be protected by the First Amendment if an individual employee engaged in it is something that an employee has a First Amendment right not to pay money to enable the union to engage in? Those are logically inconsistent positions. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the courts and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate. And the court's long, long winter break grinds to an end next week with oral arguments starting up again on Tuesday. And we'll report back from that. But on this week's show, we thought we'd turn again to... Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has been racking up the frequent flyer miles on a tour that's taken her this winter from, oh, Sundance to law schools around the country to, oh, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. She's been willing to talk pretty overtly about the Me Too moment in ways that are complicated and subtle and we thought worth probing. But first, we wanted to preview one of the most important cases of this term, Janus versus the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees, Council 31, or Janus versus AFSCME. Don't ask me how to pronounce that, in which the Supreme Court is going to consider whether an Illinois law allowing public sector unions to charge non-members for collective bargaining activities violates the First Amendment. Now, Mark Stern and I talked about this case briefly a few weeks ago, and this question of unions and agency fees and free speech is actually coming back to the court Yet again, it's heard these issues before. So while the case is going to be heard on February 26th, we wanted to take a moment today while the court's on break to do a deeper dive in what this is all about and why it might be so important. Joining us to talk about the appeal is University of California Berkeley law professor Catherine Fisk. She writes extensively about labor law. She teaches labor law, employment law, and employment discrimination. Catherine, welcome, I think for the first time, to the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. So so at, at first blush, I'm thinking that listeners at home find it very hard to comprehend that a case about pretty much the future of public sector unions in America is a speech case. Listeners would be forgiven for wondering why it's a speech case, because it really shouldn't be a speech case. But here's why it is. The whole history of American unions, unions have been elected by workers in a group called a bargaining unit on the basis of majority rule, just like we elect members of Congress. When a union is elected, it is obligated by law to represent everybody in the unit, not just its supporters. That's a little bit different from the way we do politics. 
But about 60 years ago, a conservative business-funded organization called the National Right to Work Committee started attacking various aspects of the principles of union election and union democracy, arguing that unions shouldn't be able to represent everybody. And the argument they made was an argument under the free speech clause of the First Amendment that the union's power to impose dues or fees on the workers it represents is unlawful because it requires them to give money to the union that the union then spends on speech that is protected by the First Amendment. They've won a bunch of those cases in the Supreme Court on various technical issues, and this one is their biggest effort yet to argue that the whole principle that unions elected by the majority can charge everybody who they have to represent the cost of representation violates the free speech rights of those who don't wish to pay for union representation. So that's incredibly helpful, but I'm going to ask you to go one more granular and help us understand, right, that the the hallmark case that the Supreme Court decides is in 1977. That's Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. And that's the case where the court unanimously, right, comes to what looks like a kind of do I want to say artificial agreement that they sort of dice and slice union speech so that they come to uh, what is clearly a, a, a compromise about saying that non-union members can be forced to pay for some activities that the union undertakes, right, collective bargaining, they cannot be forced to pay for, say, political speech. That really does cross the line into something that inflects upon First Amendment uh, rights. Is that a fair statement of the compromise that's reached in Abood in 1977? Yes. It's actually the same compromise that the court had reached about 20 years before in the late 1950s with respect to unions representing railway and airline employees. And it's the same compromise that they then imposed on unions representing private sector employees other than in the railway and airline industries. So so, so what the court says in Abood is, look, there are governmental interests that are at stake here that transcend the speech interests of the union member or the non-union member. And they say, you know, labor peace is one of those interests. And another interest is, you know, free riders. I mean, that's at the heart of this case, that folks who have a union that's bargaining in their interests, but they're not paying in, become free riders on the system. And that's what the court ends up balancing in a boot against the non-union members' interest in not having their money finance, say, a political campaign that they don't agree with. That's the tension. And Justice Potter Stewart writing in a booth says, I-, I think that balancing those interests, this is the way that I can calibrate it that uh, feels like it allows public sector unions to go forward, but it doesn't uh, force people, compel people to uh, finance speech they don't agree with. And that 
is the lay of the land until Justice Alito starts to say, you know, I really hate this bargain because speech is speech. Am I is that fair? The line that the court drew in Abood, which was the same line it had drawn previously in a case called Hansen and one called Street involving railway employees, is the line between political activity, that is lobbying for legislation or lobbying for what the union considers good appointments to labor boards, and on the other hand, more economic behavior like sitting across a table and negotiating with an employer over wages, hours, safety protections, working conditions, things like that. The problem with this line between the political on the one hand and the economic on the other is that it's a little bit artificial. And this was obvious to the Supreme Court in the 1950s when they invented this whole area of law, and it remains obvious now. As Justice Frankfurter recognized in the first one of these cases, a union has a choice about how to protect its workers. It can sit down at the bargaining table and ask the employer to pay its workers not less than $15 an hour, or it could go into the legislature and say, let's raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Either way, the workers are protected by higher wages. The same is true about paid family leave, about safety protections, about retirement insurance. And in the whole history of American labor, like the history of labor everywhere, sometimes worker organizations think that a political strategy is the best way to protect their members and others like them. And sometimes they think they're better off doing it by an individual contract. So it's always been a little artificial to say, well, it's economic behavior for which non-members can be charged if it's done at the bargaining table, but it's political behavior for which they can't be charged if it's done through lobbying. But nevertheless, that's the line we have. What Justice Alito wrote in the majority five to four opinion in a case a few years ago, Harris versus Quinn, having to do with home care workers, people who are paid by state Medicaid funds to care for people in their homes. He said, look, that is all political because even if the union who represents home care workers is sitting at the bargaining table with the agency that administers this system, That has important economic effects because it has to do with the budget for home care paid for by Medicaid. And, of course, that is a political issue. But that's true for all government employees. Should it be harder or easier to fire a police officer who's accused of misconduct? Harder or easier to fire a teacher whose student test scores aren't going up year after year? What kinds of safety protections should we give to firefighters or park rangers? Those are, of course, crucial workplace issues, but 
they always will have an impact on the budget. What Justice Alito's opinion in Harris suggested and what the challengers in Janus are arguing is that everything to do with public sector employment is political. Therefore, dissenting teachers or cops or firefighters or Department of Motor Vehicles clerks shouldn't have to pay for the negotiation and contract enforcement services that the union provides because the impact of what the union does is an important public policy issue. You could equally say none of it's political. It's all about the working conditions of employees. And yes, that's important policy, but fundamentally, this is the way that workers negotiate effectively to protect their own interest. And because it's a majority rule system, if you don't like what the union has done, vote the union out, but you can't benefit from the union contract and pay nothing toward the cost of negotiating or enforcing it. So, Catherine... Another way to say what I think you just said is Justice Alito's objection in Harris versus Quinn, this would have been, I guess we should say, we talked about this a few years ago on the show. There was a case called Friedrichs that came before the court raising all these issues. It it looked as though the court was going to decide 5-4 to do away with the agency shop arrangement, do away with a boot, and then Justice Scalia passed away before the court Uh, uh, decided it, so it got kicked away. And now here we have Janice, which is more or less the same facts as Friedrichs. And this is the response to Justice Alito saying in Harris versus Quinn, boy, I sure wish someone would bring a case that we can use uh, to overrule Abood. But I think what you're saying is let's understand that at its core, the compromise that had existed, that political versus economic speech distinction, was always kind of artificial. But what Justice Alito is doing is pushing on the scale to say all of it is speech and therefore nobody should have to pay involuntarily for any of it. What you're saying is, look, there's another characterization, which is all of it is political and we should all pay for it the same way students pay student fees or uh, other entities pay. You know, we all pay taxes, whether we it, it, it implicates uh, speech. Is that it? Are you just saying, of course, it's kind of an artificial line, but we should be solicitous of the interests on the other side rather than just the pure speech, uh, the compelled speech interests that Alito's worried about? That's exactly what I'm saying. Everybody who is a Democrat or who didn't vote for Donald Trump for whatever reason is paying for a government that many people find abhorrent or government policies. But that doesn't give us a right not to pay taxes. Part of living in a community is we wind up funding things that we either don't like or don't approve of or don't use. And the fact that we don't like some of what is said on our behalf doesn't allow us not to fund it. This is particularly true with respect to employees. Employees are required in many employment settings to contribute to health insurance plans, to pension plans. 
And of course, the insurance companies who gather that money use some of the money to engage in political speech that the employee might not agree with. It doesn't allow you not to participate in the health plan or the pension plan. Moreover, and this is really the parallel to the fair share fee issue in Janus, you don't have the ability to refuse to contribute to the health insurance plan or the retirement plan because they spend some of your money on political speech that you disagree with and then claim entitlement to health insurance or a pension payment. So what the Janus challengers are asking for is the right to benefit from the higher wages and the safer working conditions that the union negotiates on their behalf. And nationwide, union jobs pay on average 17% more than the same job in the non-union sector. They want to have it both ways. They want the benefit of the services that the union is required by law to provide to them without paying the cost. So, Catherine, is what's changed since 1977 and Abood, where even the conservatives signed off on this uh, unanimous opinion by Justice Stewart, is what's changed that it's just no longer accepted that uh, public sector unions, unions generally are just in and of themselves a public good? Is that's what is that what's fallen out of this case and out of this this whole conversation? I think lots of people think that public sector unions are a public good. Union density among public safety officers, police, firefighters is extremely high. They understand what the union does for them. And many of them are Republicans. This isn't just a Democrat-Republican issue when you're talking about the employees understanding why they negotiate more effectively as a group than an ind- as an individual. What has changed, I think, is the rise of very well-funded organizations who recognize that if they can eliminate the financial structure that enables unions to be effective, they can take unions out of the political scene and that may or may not change a lot about the working conditions of park rangers, public librarians, and so forth, but it will reduce the power and influence of nurses' unions, teachers' unions, who tend to support candidates who care about workers, and those candidates tend to be Democrats. That's really what's driving this But it's important to note that if the Supreme Court holds in Janus that public sector employees can refuse to pay anything to a union that negotiates about wages and working conditions and that implements the contract in the workplace every day, it will be the only First Amendment right that public sector workers have. The Supreme Court has made clear that government employees do not have free speech rights on the job. So in Garcetti versus Ceballos 
a deputy district attorney, was concerned that a police officer had given false testimony to get a search warrant in a criminal case. And he wrote a memo to his supervisor raising questions about this testimony, suggesting that the prosecution based on the allegedly false testimony should be dropped. His supervisor retaliated against him for writing this memo. He brought a First Amendment challenge to the discipline saying, I spoke on a matter of public concern, false convictions, to my boss, and I was punished for my speech. That should violate the First Amendment. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four opinion by Justice Kennedy, rejected the First Amendment claim, saying that government employees have no First Amendment protection for their speech on the job regarding their working conditions. Same thing in the other case, the Board of Duria case. So government employees don't have a First Amendment right as individuals to walk into their supervisor's office and say, my working conditions are unsafe, or we're being inefficient about how we're spending the taxpayer's money. The employee has no First Amendment right not to be fired for that kind of speech. How could it be that speech that would not be protected by the First Amendment if an individual employee engaged in it is something that an employee has a First Amendment right not to pay money to enable the union to engage in. Those are logically inconsistent positions. So, so, so that leads me to a question that I feel like I ask every single episode of this show, which is, how did everything become about the First Amendment? And you can apply that to Masterpiece Cake Shop, you know, the case that we uh, uh, discussed earlier in the term that had to do with trying to do an end run uh, against civil rights protections for uh, gay couples who want to get married. We've talked about it a, a lot in the Citizens United context. This seems to be another example. I think Professor Jed Purdy describes this as just a generalized embrace of free speech as the idea that, you know, free markets win and everything is speech. And we're going to return to what I think he has called, and I think you've written about this, the new Lochner era, where by privileging speech over all other values, uh, we slowly erode uh, an awful lot of protective uh, legislative regimes that we have put into place for the greater good. Is that is that What's going on here is we're just sort of, I keep using the word, but weaponizing speech claims to gut other constitutional values? It's worse than that, actually, because I don't think the court is being consistent about when it treats speech as protected by the First Amendment and when it is treating speech as not protected by the First Amendment or not speech at all. Government employees have very few, no free speech rights on the job and few free speech rights off the job. If we were fully embracing the value of free speech over other speech, the court wouldn't be drawing lines between saying, well, the speech that they like is protected and the speech they don't like is not protected. For example... In Wisconsin, when 
Scott Walker won in a highly contested election, the legislature enacted a law eliminating bargaining rights, that is, eliminating the rights to bargain at all for every union and all employees represented by those unions who didn't support him and the Republican majority that were elected to the Wisconsin state legislature. The only unions that retained the right to bargain collectively were the unions that supported Walker and the Republicans. There was a challenge to that, arguing that the line that the legislature drew between those employees who could still unionize and those who could not was based on political ideology and was therefore unconstitutional. And the Court of Appeals rejected that argument, saying, no, the legislature can draw the lines at once between those who retain the right to bargain, cops, firefighters, state troopers, prison guards, and those who lost the right to unionize and bargain collectively, teachers, university employees, clerks in the government service. To outsiders, that looked like an absolutely ideologically driven law. There are tons of laws that draw lines based on speech that is protected and speech that's not. That is all of labor law. Can unions engage in a strike? Can they picket? If the court is really consistent about saying, gosh, speech related to unions is protected by the First Amendment, they need to really radically rethink a lot of labor law, but that's not what they're doing. All they're doing is attacking one little part of the law that regulates paying money to unions and leaving the rest of the law, which sharply restricts the ability of employees to bargain collectively, to picket, to strike, to call for boycotts, untouched. It looks to me like they're simply saying the First Amendment protects only the speech that they like and not the speech they don't like. And that's the worst version of free speech law you could possibly imagine. And implicit in what you've just said about Wisconsin, certainly explicit, as I recall it, in Elena Kagan's dissent in Harris versus Quinn, is the commentary that this actually redounds really poorly for women uh, and that there are huge implications when you go down this road of gutting public sector unions that actually impact the genders differently. Is that is that uh Correct in your in your uh, experience, women tend and people of color also tend to disproportionately benefit from the right to negotiate collectively. They are able to negotiate, for example, for paid family and medical leave, for accommodations for childbirth, nursing as in breastfeeding, for protections that they can't effectively negotiate on their own. Women also work disproportionately in lower-wage occupations. So the Wisconsin example that I gave, which were the unions that retained the right to bargain collectively, 
public safety, you know, first responders, police, firefighters, prison guards, those are male-dominated occupations who lost the right to bargain collectively, nurses, teachers, DMV clerks, female-dominated occupations. And thus, wages and pension benefits remained high and generous in some sectors of state employment in Wisconsin, and they fell in other sectors, which disproportionately affects women and children and people of color. Last question, Catherine. I think it was widely believed that if Justice Scalia had stayed on the court uh, and decided Friedrichs, it would have been a 5-4 victory for the challengers and may have meant the end of public sector unions as we know it. Given that I think uh, I'm partly asking you this, I think that Neil Gorsuch uh, is going to come down on the Scalia side. Uh, In other words, that this may spell the end of public sector unions. Uh, What next? Is is America just over? Should we should we all just go home? Is there a a plan B? Is there a a salvage plan that uh, folks should be thinking about? There is a plan B. Public employee unions have seen this coming since Donald Trump won the White House. After the argument in Friedrichs, where from the tenor of the questions, it appeared that Justice Scalia had changed his mind from a unanimous opinion he had written not that long ago to being willing to strike down fair share fees Public sector unions began recognizing that they have to do a lot of internal organizing and recruit the workers who they represent to be full supporters and full dues-paying members of the union. It's not enough just to negotiate a good contract and then administer it fairly for both for those who pay and those who are who paid only agency fees. They needed to do a lot of internal organizing. After uh, Justice Scalia died and it appeared possible that a Democratic president was going to appoint his replacement. People thought, well, all right, we dodged that bullet. But when the Senate refused to confirm Merrick Garland uh, and waited out the election until Trump appointed Neil Gorsuch, and given that Neil Gorsuch has voted 100% of the time with Clarence Thomas, I don't think most people think that the Supreme Court is going to rule for the union's unless maybe Justice Kennedy, who wrote the government employee free speech case Garcetti versus Ceballos involving the deputy district attorney I described, maybe Kennedy will be nervous about the implications of ruling against the union. If the challengers win in Janus and they get rid of fair share fees, nobody should believe that this is the last case that the right-to-work organization, so-called, is going to bring against unions. They have cases pending in the lower courts all over the country arguing that not only does it violate the First Amendment rights of union-represented workers to have to pay fees for representational services, it violates their rights to have unions negotiate a contract on their behalf at all. That is, they argue that the principle of majority rule unconstitutionally restricts the rights of those who would rather not negotiate based on the majority rule basis. 
And so I think there's going to be an attack on the very principle on which unions have operated for a 100 years, which is they seek a, an election, they get elected by the majority, and then they represent everybody in favor of a rule in which a union can't represent anybody who doesn't choose to be represented. And that really will be a fundamental attack on a basic principle that's been settled law since 1937. Oh, my God. That's I'm sorry. I'm just pulling it together here. That is my sad face sound. OK. Um, Catherine Fisk uh, teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. She writes extensively about labor law and she teaches labor, employment and employment discrimination law there. Catherine, it's been incredibly clarifying to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on the show, Dahlia. The Gist is a daily news and opinion podcast from Slate. Every weekday afternoon, host Mike Pesca sorts through the torrents of information in the news cycle, and he does it the way only Mike Pesca can. He selects a few stories that cry out for closer scrutiny because of an odd fact or an untested argument or some thesis he needs to explore. Think of the gist as a curated op-ed page, but with many more jokes. Look for it every weekday evening. Check out the January 31st episode with Fred Kaplan, who explains why we still have no U.S. ambassador to South Korea and what that means for the tensions with North Korea. And now we are going to talk about one of our very favorite subjects on this podcast, Ruth Bader Ginsburg who at 84 years old, almost 85, has been burning down the tour circuit in recent weeks, talking about everything from collegiality on the court to attacks on the press to this moment in Me Too. I actually had the privilege uh, of participating in an event on Tuesday at UPenn Law School where the justice somehow managed to do a lunch panel, a Q&A, then a symposium, another Q&A, oh, and then a 90-minute Q&A with uh, Jeff Rosen at the National Constitution Center. I, I want to be super clear that I was tired after the lunch uh, and she was wearing heels. Uh, she was amazing and partied on until 10 something. So I want to talk a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Me Too, Rob Porter and this moment for women. And we wanted to have back Professor Leah Littman. She's an associate professor of law at UC Irvine School of Law. We had her on the podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, listeners just loved her. So it is a delight to have Leah Littman on the show. She teaches constitutional law with an emphasis on federalism and federal post-conviction review. Leah, welcome back to Amicus. Thank you so much for having me back, Delia. And I wanted to start, I think I need to start with Rob Porter. Uh, this has been a slow-moving scandal that has unrolled about what John Kelly knew and what the White House knew and uh, who who he was and what happened. And, and I think the only question I really wanted to start with is how did a story that wasn't even a big enough deal for the White House to take it seriously seemingly for a year, a story of two uh, reports of domestic uh, abuse and uh, really, I think, serious 
questions about his treatment of women. This wasn't even a blip, it seems, uh, to the White House for a year. How has it turned into not only a national Me Too story, but but a story that has gone on for days and days and days long after you would have thought the news cycle would be tired of it? I think it's a combination of at least two things. One is something that is very concerning, which is the response to serious allegations of sexual violence, domestic violence, sexual harassment is apparently still, let's just brush this under the rug and not do anything about it. It only becomes a problem when other people and specifically the public find out about it. This has in some ways been the story of Me Too. Women for decades have figured out that if they attempt to internally report allegations of harassment, nothing really happens, at least to their harassers. And too often, some negative consequence happens for them. And then what happens is you have a public outcry. And then all of a sudden, it becomes an issue where institutions and individuals feel pressure to actually do something. And it's unsurprising that this happened to the White House. I mean, we are seeing this in so many different institutions, and they didn't exactly do themselves any favors because as soon as that Daily Mail story broke, the next few days and the last week has really been a masterclass in all of the ways that we diminish women. You have Senator Orrin Hatch coming out and making these statements about how the accusers have to be politically motivated and morally bankrupt character assassins. You have John Kelly and the White House itself repeatedly underscoring what an amazing person and staff secretary Rob Porter is. And then you have the women telling stories about how they were counseled against going public with their accusations in order to protect Rob Porter and Rob Porter's career ambitions. So it seems like every day, if not every few hours, we have seen and been reminded of another way in which all of the forces that contributed to Me Too are still operating. And so that, I think, is part of why this story has continued on and we are still talking about it. It seems to me as I've been reflecting on on it that that, that there's this valence here of uh, national security, right? Here's somebody who gets a clearance because somehow it doesn't matter for national security purposes that he may have actually uh, hurt his wives physically. There's a there's a sort of military valence here. You know, here's John Kelly, honored uh, general, you know, lifelong, in his words, you know, protector and cherisher of women. I mean, there's so many ways in it in in which it seems to pull in these threads about other things that, you know, we want to say, no, these are serious problems. You know, national security is serious. You know, the possibility that Rob Porter could have been uh, susceptible to blackmail, that that in, that in manly ways really matters. You know, the military, it, it matters, you know, and, and all of these things are getting yanked into the center of this story that, that, as you suggest, is just so easy to say, oh, this is just women and it's complaining and like, can't we just make it go away? It seems as though it, at some level, Level, it's risen to a place where it has drawn in everything that we say we value, even if we don't value the questions around domestic violence and domestic abuse. 
I think that that's so right. And it's important because it really underscores how our inattention and lack of concern for women isn't just hurting women, it is hurting everyone and everything. So in this context, as you point out, you know, a compromised potentially national security by making a White House official vulnerable to blackmail. It is an indication about maybe something isn't quite right with respect to military order and military discipline if these are the individuals that military generals are praising. And this has, I think, also been part of the conversation about Me Too, which is when we are talking about harassment, the costs aren't just, you know, what individual women or women collectively suffer. We are losing out on having a better workforce, doing better work, and learning so many things because we are compromising so many goals and institutions and ideas just to protect harassers and apologize for behavior that has real consequences and is compromising, you know, so many aspects of our lives. So, so Leah, I have to ask you the question I asked you last time you were on this podcast in December, and that is this dichotomy, this duality that we are now starting to see on spool, which is the notion that Me Too is in tension with due process. And you're a lawyer and you think about due process all the time. And I'm going to read you Donald Trump's tweet from last week, uh, which I know, I'm sure you know by heart. Uh, People's lives are being shattered and destroyed by a mere allegation. Some are true and some are false. Some are old and some are new. That There's a Susian quality. Sorry. Some are true and some are false. Some are old and some are new. There is no recovery for someone falsely accused life and career are gone. Is there no such thing any longer as due process? That's the tweet. And I think it actually pretty eloquently, to the extent that it's eloquent, uh, sets up the tension here that we have this notion that we live in a binary world where either due process happens and we credit uh, the accused with all sorts of rights to all sorts of legal protections. And then we have Me Too, which is, I guess, this other crazy thing where shrieking women with flaming torches just run you out of your job based on nothing but allegations. Now, you have said to me before, and I know you believe it, those two things are not, in fact, uh, irreconcilable. This is not uh, a fair construction of uh, the dichotomy here. So so can you speak uh, to what it means when time and time again, and we're hearing it out of the White House now, due process is cited as the thing that is uh, at stake here in this Me Too moment? Yes. So I, I do enjoy that tweet because it almost called to mind Dr. Seuss, you know, some are old, yeah, some are new, some right? are red, some, some are blue. Are um, <laughs> but yeah, so due process is a protection that applies to criminal proceedings. Um, so criminal defendants are entitled to due process. We can't convict criminal defendants beyond a reasonable doubt. These are protections that I value, that lawyers value, that I know so many of the women who are part of Me Too value. What due process is not, however, is a requirement that before we collectively as a public or an individual employer or individual people come to judgment about an individual that we subject them to a full criminal trial. That's not due process. Instead, we take a look at all of the facts. In addition to due process, you often hear calls to presumptions of innocence. You know, presumptions of innocence are just that. They're presumptions. And that means we start out with 
the supposition. And, you know, frankly, there's a lot to suggest maybe it's mistaken that most people aren't harassers, most people aren't abusers. So we start out with that, this presumption of innocence. And then we take a look at the facts. And you know what? When there are photos, when there are contemporaneous corroborations, when these women have confided in people over the years, not only at the time, but thereafter, when they have written about it publicly and attached their names to it, those are the kinds of things that collectively rebut a presumption of innocence, either for an employer or for individuals as people making a judgment about, you know, what to think about someone who's working in the White House. So, you know, I don't think that there is much about Me Too that totally resembles a wild mob running through the streets, just throwing men out of their jobs for no reason. I think, you know, oftentimes the fear of this happening has made it seem like it is. But I really don't know that there's a ton of evidence about that. You know, all of these allegations, including Rob Porter, they are investigations that happened in reputable news sources. There is a ton of underlying evidence to support these reports. And I don't think it's crazy to think that employers or members of the public can then come to a decision or a judgment based on all of those facts. You know, in our country, we have this thing called at-will employment. It's been working against women for years because oftentimes when women will make an allegation, they'll be labeled as a troublemaker and then let go. You don't really have a right to your job. Maybe this is something we want to revisit. Maybe this is something we think unions can fix if they're still going to exist. But there is at-will employment. That means employers can make decisions to fire employees if they're if they want to. They can't do so for impermissible reasons, but an impermissible reason doesn't include credible allegations of domestic violence, sexual harassment, or sexual assault. So due process, presumption of innocence. It's perfectly consistent with what we have seen from Me Too thus far. Amen. Uh, I, I I think also probably just worth flagging for the record that a year long FBI investigation <laughs> has to count as some kind of process. Uh, in addition to, as you say, these are credible media uh, uh, investigations, but also it, it is probably not altogether irrelevant in this conversation that. Rob Porter had an awful lot of process from the FBI. Uh, it is not just not the case that these two women uh, single handedly have wrecked his life. He's had more process than certainly most people get. And I think certainly than most, as you point out, women get uh, when they're told, as Orrin Hatch initially suggested, that they're just liars. Yeah. I mean, imagine if every woman who made an allegation of sexual harassment was entitled to a year-long FBI investigation in order to look into her claims. I mean, that is maybe too much process, but it's certainly a lot of process that Rob Porter got and more than sufficient when we are talking about things like due process for a very high-level White House job. So, so, so ostensibly, Leah, I've asked you on to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So let's let's do that. And if you can do it in Dr. Seuss rhyme, then like more points. But she has been really uh, out there in the last couple of weeks talking as openly as she can about Me Too and about women and about this moment. And she uh, I heard her uh, in Philadelphia this week saying exactly what you just said, that yes, and you can have Me Too and you can have due process. And it's preposterous 
to suggest that they're at odds with one another. But she's also talked really elliptically, uh, I think, about her own, first of all, telling uh, stories of of her own uh, experience, Me Too experience. Um, She's been out there as much as she can be out there. And I think more than an awful lot of people who are in very, very prominent leadership positions have been out there. Uh, what What is she doing? She's trying to thread the needle between, you know, she got in trouble for calling out Donald Trump as a liar before the, I think she called him a faker before the election. Uh, she's trying to thread the needle between being in this conversation and hovering above it, right? Yes. Yeah, so she was really taking pains in a recent interview, I think, with Poppy Harlow to abstain or demur on questions where she was being asked to weigh in on um, more political matters. But I think she has also gone out of her way to support Me Too and say, it's well past the time that this is happening. This is something that should be happening. And it's up to the millennials to keep it going. And I think that that's important because that gives the movement some additional gas and keeps it going. It is not exactly um, uh, fun to be doing Me Too stuff all of the time or on the ground, just kind of in the grind. And having someone like Justice Ginsburg say to you, keep going and this is important and keep at it, um, I think and hope is encouraging to the women, you know, on campuses and in different professions who are asking for change and trying to make things better. Um, During these interviews, she also said that she didn't think that there was going to be any backlash to Me Too. I'm not sure that that's totally right. Um, I also think she might have suggested there wasn't a ton of action from Congress. And I think that Actually, in the last few days, we've seen small changes on that score, maybe not super meaningful change, like revisiting the laws on sexual harassment and when and whether companies can be liable for not taking any action. But, for example, Trey Gowdy, of all people, um, recently announced that the House Oversight Committee was going to be doing some investigation into the Rob Porter investigation and the White House's decision to give him an interim clearance and apparently keep him on the job. So that's an encouraging sign. And I think that there were some others as well. So, So let's listen for one minute to the interview you've just referenced. This is CNN's Poppy Harlow. Uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg speaking at Columbia last week. Uh, Her daughter was in the audience. Her grandkids were in the audience. And uh, here she is talking a little bit about her own Me Too moment when she was an undergrad at Cornell University and apparently slightly chemistry challenged. I was not very good in in the lab work. Neither was was I. Instructor who who helped me uh, get through when exam time came around, he said, I'll give you a practice exam. Mm. And I went in very confident that I'd be able to deal with the exam the next day. It turned out it was the practice exam. Mm. And I knew just what he expected in return. Mm. There were many incidents like that, but in those days, the attitude was, what can we do about it? Nothing. Boys will be boys. But I don't think you're someone who just did nothing about it. Yeah, well, in his case, I said, how dare you? 
And it, it, was, it was a challenge for me because I had to make some mistakes so that I wouldn't get 100% on the exam. <laughs> but you spoke up. You spoke up. What is it? What does it mean? Uh, I keep thinking about this. You know, she's eighty-four years old, Leah. She lived through a time where she had to hide her own pregnancy because she would have been fired if folks knew she was pregnant. She lived at a time where she was one of nine women in her one L class at Harvard Law School and had to stand up and justify in front of everybody why she was taking a spot from a man. I mean, she has lived through things that you and I, our eyes would bug out if we endured them. And yet there's something really profound about the fact that at 84, she's still fighting this fight. Does it hearten you? I, I know you said it's it's awfully encouraging uh, to young women to hear her say, me too, this happened with my TA. But is there a part of you that just dies a little to know that this stuff that we thought was fought and litigated and done in the 1970s and the 1980s, again, with Anita Hill, that we are still doing this today? Yes, it's always kind of bittersweet. On the one hand, as you note, some of the things she endured are things that are not common anymore. Um, you know, pregnancy discrimination still exists in some ways with, you know, the failure to give family leave and parental leave in many places. But the sort of discrimination that she faced isn't happening today. So it's encouraging on the one hand, change is possible. And, you know, in the last 50 or however years, we have made strides. But we haven't totally fix the problem. And many things that are happening now have been happening for a long time. And we just haven't managed to do anything about them, even though there do appear to be public moments, including the Anita Hill testimony that you referenced that you would think have made sexual harassment, um, uh, put that on our radar screen and taught us that it's a problem. But you know, clearly it's not. And that is part of what makes me skeptical about whether Me Too is going to lead to any meaningful or many meaningful changes. I think one thing it's doing is creating a space for women to make disclosures that they couldn't um, make before and expect any consequences to happen. Um, and it is, you know, minimizing some prospects of retaliation for them, but it's not extending to all industries. There are so many obstacles that still exist. And I worry that we are congratulating ourselves on, you know, a successful Me Too and something that's really important when I'm still kind of waiting to see what we're going to do to make sure that 50 years from now, we're not still telling stories that, you know, Justice Ginsburg is telling us today happened, you know, however many decades ago. So uh, it, it is bittersweet. It's encouraging on the one hand, because you see someone who is so amazing and accomplished and overcome so much, and you think, I can keep fighting, I can keep doing this, and we have made change. On the other hand, it's perhaps not change that has happened fast enough. And maybe it's incumbent on me to say that she has really been at pains, Justice Ginsburg, in all of her appearances to say, Me Too only works if it's outside of Hollywood, if it's outside of 
uh, the academy, if it's outside of, you know, the the judiciary, it's going to have to filter down, she keeps saying, to the chambermaids in the hotels. And I think that's exactly the point you're making, that this, you know, at, at one level, it's extraordinary and amazing what we've seen so far. But I think that in order to see really meaningful, systemic change, we're going to have to be mindful of who is not in this conversation right now. Leah, when first uh, we had you on the show, we were talking about uh, Me Too in the federal judiciary and uh, an inquiry that was just, I think, launching at the time that you came on the show uh, to try to investigate uh, what had gone wrong in the judicial branch. Do you want to catch us up a little bit on where we are? I think we can note that there was a Second Circuit investigation into Judge Alex Kaczynski's conduct uh, that has now been dropped. Is there anything else that that's been happening in recent weeks after uh, a task force was set up to really examine this in depth in the judicial branch? Yes. So the chief justice called for the creation of a working group and he asked James Duff, who's the director of the administrative office of the U.S. courts to do so. So that working group um, got created and is up and running. And I think two other courts of appeals also created working groups on their own. And then this past week, Senator Grassley and Senator Feinstein sent a letter to the administrative office director asking him a few questions about this committee and pointedly requiring him to respond to some fairly specific questions, including how they selected the members of the working group, none of whom are recent law clerks or um, people who aren't themselves federal judges or senior members of the administrative office of the U.S. courts. The senators also asked the working group to provide details about what the judiciary's procedure for sexual harassment training is, what the judiciary's exact procedure is for handling sexual harassment complaints, whether the judiciary affords a remedy to law clerks who feel retaliated against when they provide a complaint, and other questions that I think are really important in order for us to have confidence in the working group's ability to address the problem of sexual harassment in the judiciary and potentially more serious problems as well. I know you saw um, the ABA Journal article by one of the senior counsels at the organization, Nicole Vanderdose, in which she doesn't name names, but raises pretty serious allegations of sexual violence on the part of a state judge and a federal judge as part of a general call to ask the judiciary to really take seriously and provide fair processes for individuals who are victimized by members of courts. So that's an encouraging Signed, by which I mean the letter from the senators. And, you know, it's nice when you add that on top of the call from Trey Gowdy to actually investigate the White House's process for dealing with a, a parent domestic abuser who had an interim clearance. So hopefully this is a sign that Congress is actually paying attention and is going to perhaps require other institutions to take more seriously complaints of sexual harassment than Congress does. Hey, Leah, before you let, I let you go, uh, one of the things that I love about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she often answers questions with, if I were queen... And then she tells us what the world would look like. Just for one second, not to put you on the spot, but if you were queen uh, in this moment of hashtag Me Too and all of its implications and manifestations and the spinning plates, 
Uh, what is the one thing you would like to see become an enduring change? What is the thing that we would put into practice to try to mitigate against what we've seen happen in the last few months? If I were queen, I would want us to change the norm under which bystanders and people who observe harassment don't say or do anything about it. I think we need to equip bystanders to check in with people who are being harassed or victimized and enable them to speak up to the harasser, maybe in the moment just to distract them or afterwards. I think that that is a really, really powerful untapped resource and a way to solve um, so many of these issues that are part of Me Too. Leah Lippman is an assistant professor of law at UC Irvine School of Law. She teaches constitutional law with a focus on federalism and federal post-conviction review. And it is a treat, Leah, again, to have you on the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. And that is all she wrote for today's episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch, and we love your letters, our email is amicus at slate.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And we love to hear your thoughts about prior shows or what you'd like to hear in the future. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer, and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with you in two weeks for another episode of Amicus. Amicus.